Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. All right, so we're looking at this passage again that you heard me read this morning. It's the last half of chapter 17, beginning in verses 15 down through 29. We've, we've called this free fall uh, because, in, in a sense, David, um, David is referred to kind of obliquely in the 17th chapter of uh, the book of 2 Samuel. We don't have him actually speaking anywhere. He is being spoken to. He is being directed. Other people are talking about him. And so in that sense, uh, you know, it's like if you go to apply for a job and then the person who interviewed you said, well, we'll get back to you, and you leave the office and you know that now there are going to be ensuing conversations. People are going to be uh, talking about you, looking at your Facebook page, if they can get into it, uh, trying to investigate you to see what kind of person you are. And you really don't have any control over that. You came in, you gave the interview, you filled out the application, and now other people are deciding your fate. And there's much the same feeling in the 17th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. David is being told through Zadok and Abiathar and their two sons, the message, uh, the messages are getting out to him what Absalom is planning on doing and what he should do in response. Now, we've seen that Absalom receives the advice of Ahithophel, who is, whose advice is as good as gold, Bathsheba's grandfather. And Ahithophel's advice was, let me go, let me pick out 12,000 men. Because he's, if you read between the lines, what Ahithophel is saying is, you need to strike now. You don't need to wait for David to, um, to recover from his hurried exodus out of uh, Jerusalem. Just give me 12,000 men and we will go and corner him and I personally will kill David. We won't seek to get in a skirmish with anyone else. We'll just take David out. A, a coup d'etat, a blow against the head of the state. Uh, Hushai the Archite, who is uh, David's spy, uh, Absalom asks him, uh, Absalom receives Ahithophel's advice, and he and the elders think that sounds good. But then for some reason, Absalom says, well, what do you think, Hushai? And Hushai says, well, what you need to do is you need to call all of Israel together, amass a huge army, and then go after David, because David is like a, a mother bear who's lost her cubs. David is going to be ripped roaring, snorting mad, and he's going to come out fighting to the death. And in that bit of advice, Hushai was trying to provide some time for David um, to get out of Dodge, to get across the Jordan, 
and to get into the wilderness uh, so that he could recover and prepare for there was there was going to be some kind of confrontation. And the text told us last week that the reason why Absalom heeded Hushai's advice and rejected Ahithophel's advice was that the Lord had determined to do harm to Absalom. In other words, you may remember back in the 11th chapter, 11th and 12th chapters of the book of 2 Samuel, when, when Solomon is born to Bathsheba, that the narrator tells us that the Lord loved Solomon. The Lord loved Solomon. And the narrator is giving us a hint there. He's saying that, he's telling us that the one who is to succeed David on his throne is going to be Solomon. That, and I believe that David knew this. He knew that Absalom was not the man. Now, I told you last week that uh, the Jewish uh, Talmud taught that Absalom was a giant. And they even carried this to an extreme. They said that a man found Absalom's skull and stood in Absalom's eye socket. uh, No, stood in Absalom's nose and his feet, he sank down till his feet touched Absalom's eye. Eye socket. Now, I don't know how huge of a man that would be. Obvious, obviously, this is a, this is a, a imagination, theological imagination gone wild. But what uh, the the Jewish Talmudists want us to understand is that Absalom was a huge figure of um, gift and power and might that was arrayed against David. But what they also want us to understand is that David has a history of being a giant killer. So sometimes you wonder, uh, you know, your children, you, you do your best to raise them up and train them, and then they grow up and they're like, I don't know, where in the world did they learn that? Why are they doing this? And this was the kind of alienation that existed between David and Absalom. David, as Absalom's father, really didn't know what to do with this beast of a man, who the Bible tells us was handsome, good-looking, full head of hair, a giant of a man. He had all of the graces and gifts, humanly speaking, that a person needed to to lead a nation. And yet, because the narrator tells us that God loved Solomon, David in his heart of hearts knows that Absalom, in trying to wrench the throne away from him, is only going to meet with disastrous defeat. Now, This is why when we get into the 18th chapter and we hear David's mournful cry, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, would to God that I had died for you. When he tells the men going out into the battle, deal gently with Absalom for my sake. I think there was some, there was some desire, some feeling, some hope on David's part that if Absalom could be captured, if Absalom could not be killed, 
that, uh, that David could so- somehow work out some kind of truce with him. You're not the one. I understand why you've done what you've done, but you're not the one who will be the king of Israel. But as we'll see in chapter 18, things at, at Absalom's fate is out of David's hands at that point. So here we have Ahithophel, who now his advice has been rejected. Absalom has heard Hushai, and so now they've given David space to breathe. Ahithophel, as the text tells us, knows that knows that Absalom has taken the wrong advice. He knows that this advice that Hushai has given is going to give David the giant killer enough time to recover, to find the strength to ultimately defeat Absalom. So Ahithophel, as the text tells us, he knows that he has, in in the rejection of his advice, he knows that he's written, his own order for his own execution. He knows that David is going to come back to Jerusalem and and that if he is alive, he will be executed for high treason. So he, he decides then to set his house in order and take his own life. It's a tragic story. But verses 15 through 29 of the 17th chapter then kind of outline the details of how they get to David this message. Don't stop on this side of Jordan, but keep going. Get to the other side of Jordan. We've bought you enough time while Absalom is sounding the trumpet to calling all Israel to come to Jerusalem and, and to, to come against you. We've given you enough time to get across the Jordan, and to get to prepare yourself for battle. Interesting in this passage how God uses a woman. Again, women in the life of David is an interesting study. How God uses this nameless woman to hide the two spies in the well. And how God uses his providential care how God uses total strangers to provide uh, the material that David needs to sustain his troops and to prepare himself for the battle that is inevitable. So Arthur Pink says, we've seen how God made use of Hushai, David's friend, to defeat the council which Ahithophel had proposed to Absalom. This meant a short breathing space was afforded the fugitive king. Hushai at once took steps to acquaint his master with his success. So Hushai then is saying, look, I don't know what they're going to do, but this is what I advise. And it seemed as though they were going to take my advice, but you, you, need to, you need to get across Jordan, the other side of Jericho, into the Transjordan, into the wilderness. And we know it's the wilderness because the last verse of chapter 7 17, uh, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. That afforded the best uh, place of preparation and the best place of protection for David at this point. The two priests, Pink goes on to say, the two priests, 
This is talking about Zadok and Abiathar's sons. The two priests who served as messengers were obliged to take refuge in a farmer's house at Bahurim, hiding in a well, which his wife covered. And Pink says, how many strange and unexpected places have sheltered the servants of God from their enemies? Only the day, the day of judgment to come, will fully reveal. Now, occasionally on our study in the life of David, we've taken a look at the Psalms that were composed by David during certain events in his life. And it, it, it's beyond contention uh, when I say that at this period in David's life, he composed Psalms 42 and 43. So if you turn in your Bible, um, we'll focus on this for just a few minutes this morning and see the lesson to be learned. Psalms 42 and 43. We read it, the first five verses of Psalm 42. Sometimes the numbering of the Psalms is different, and it's because in, in some people's numbering of the Psalms, they combine both Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And this is why, uh, like if you go to a Catholic church sometimes, you'll, if you took your Bible and, and opened to a Psalm, it may not be the exact one that they're referring to because sometimes they combine 42 and 43. The reason why they combine 42 and 43 is, look, I'll, I'll show this to you uh, quickly here. Look at Psalm 42 and verse 5. What does it say? Read it with me. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And then we look in verse 11 of Psalm 42. What does it say? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And then we look at verse 5 of Psalm 43, and what does it say? Why are you cast down, my soul? So in some people's reckoning of the Psalms, uh, in some editions, because of this, they combine Psalm 42 and 43. I think, I think it's safe uh, for us to assume that uh, the two Psalms, as we have in our present-day Bibles, were probably one at some point and were composed by David during this time. Look at what David says then in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. We've just finished reading chapter 17 where it says the people were weary and they were hungry and they were thirsty. What was David's attitude? David's attitude was, yeah, I, I, I'm all of that too, but really what I'm hungry and thirsty for is you, God. Now, I, I think this is an amazing connection because typically when we get in a trial like David is in, our the trial has an erosive effect on our relationship with God. Now, when things are going relatively well, you know, we can find, we can kind of find our common prayer book, you know, Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals, and we go to the day and we read the scripture passages. 
Well, when all hell is breaking loose in our life, typically the first thing that we jettison in the midst of our trial is those habits that uh, develop and maintain our relationship with God. You say, well, I've, I've just been so busy. I've just been so overwhelmed by this whole thing. And, and Or we may even say worse things like, I can't believe that God's letting this happen to me. And if anybody was in a situation like that, it was David at this point. I mean, chased out of town like a rabid dog. All the while saying, I don't know what God has planned for me. And when he stops for a moment, the message comes from Jerusalem again. Don't stop. Keep going. You gotta, you've gotta summon the last ounce of your strength to get on the other side of Jordan. But David has this, this man who is after God's heart in some strange way of understanding. And how many know that in our, in our study of the life of David, that whole phrase has taken on a new mystery of meaning for us. I thought I understood what it meant, you know, to be a man after God's heart. But really what, what David is showing us here is that when, when life is dishing out the worst to him, David, because he is a man after God's heart, he focuses in on his relationship with God. What I need right now is not food for my body, but what I need is to be refreshed in you. Look at it again. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, not a dead memory of God, but for the God who presently exists. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. We've all gotten into that situation. So overwhelmed by a crisis in our lives that we have no desire to eat. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, the relentless assault on his faith. Where is, you know, you're talking about God, David, you being a, a man after God's heart, where is this God that you're constantly talking of? He said, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. As I pour out my soul, he was voluntarily ridding himself of all those things in his life that could give him strength. He says, I remember when I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. Of course, this brings up the image of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Then he says in verse 5, here it is, why are you cast down on my soul? He, he really arrests the free-fall descent. Sometimes, you know, we've, we've heard this before, sometimes you just have to get a hold of yourself and preach to your soul a little bit. David does this. He doesn't do it just once in this situation. He doesn't do it just twice in this situation, but he does it three times. He, he talks to himself. 
He speaks to his own soul. Why? He says, are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Here's the answer. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul, he says, is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. And here's the important phrase that places, that locates this psalm in the 17th chapter of the book of Second Samuel, when David says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan. I think about this. It takes them all night to get across Jordan till the last per- when the last person steps out of the water into the wilderness the sun comes up and it was only at that point that David must have found some time some place in the midst of this uh, crisis to focus on God to meditate to contemplate to preach to his own soul Robert Barron says, though David was a fugitive, pressed almost beyond endurance by sore trials, nevertheless, he maintained his intercourse with the Lord. That's not, uh, that shouldn't be, I didn't change that. That shouldn't be Robert Barron. That's Arthur Pink. He maintained his intercourse with the Lord. He maintained that intimate connection with the Lord. Now, I believe the reason sometimes you and I go through trial after trial after trial is that we fail when it comes to this lesson. We, all of us, me, me included. We are loath to learn the lesson that when, when life comes pressing in on us with crises, we don't learn the lesson that it, it is God's way of shaping us, forming us, directing us to look to him. And the first thing we do when we go into panic mode is that we, we look at everything else and then it's kind of like when somebody get, goes to the hospital and the, the doctor's report is not good and then a family mom, member comes out and says, well, all we can do now is pray. Well, why didn't we, you know, the question is, why didn't we do that from the beginning? Why, why does it take such a desperate situation for us to realize that really we don't have control over much of anything in this life? Fine, you, you got to pick out what dress you're going to wear or what pants you're going to wear today. Fine, so that... That defines your free will. But really, when you think about it, there are very few things in our life that we have control over and a multitude of things that you and I have to manage and manage correctly. And David is showing us here that the key to managing our lives correctly is not to allow the trial this erosive uh kind of denigrating effect on our relation, on our intimacy with God. I I don't know if you're hearing that this morning or not. Let let me put it another way. There, 
there are certain crises in our lives where the only solution to that crisis is that I am going to have to preach to myself. Nobody else can do this work. It is, it is a Trinitarian work to speak to God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit that lives within me to preach to my soul and say, there is yet reason to hope. I love this statement. Again, this one's not, um, you'll have to forgive me for the attributions here. This one is uh, Charles Spurgeon, who wrote the Treasury of David, a commentary on all the Psalms. He said, it is well to tell the Lord how we feel. It is well to tell the Lord how we feel. And the more plain the confession, the better. David talks like a sick child to his mother, and we should seek to imitate him. Here it is. Uh, John Golding, uh, uh, John Golding Jay Gay, who uh, again wrote a commentary. He's a professor at Fuller uh, Seminary, uh, wrote many commentaries, but also on the Psalms, quoted by Sam Storms, who is uh, known as the charismatic Calvinist. Sam Storm says, Golding Gay points out that as the stanzas develop, he's talking about in Psalm 42 and 43, as the stanzas develop, we, we could say, uh, so, so there, there are verses to the song, but the course in Psalms 42 and 43, the course that is repeated is, why are you cast down on my soul? So, you, you know, we sing songs, we used to sing songs, melodies of praise that have four verses in the course. The chorus in Psalms 42 and 43, this is one song, one psalm. The chorus is, why are you cast down, O my soul? They sing the chorus three times. But in between the courses, there are stanzas or verses. And Golden Gay is saying, as the stanzas develop, the screw gets tighter, the agony deeper. I don't... <clears throat> Here's when you need to let your spiritual imagination do the work and try for just a moment um, to, to sit, to stand in David's shoes as the morning sun arises and he looks toward the west and he sees uh, the geography come to light and to contemplate what the day might hold, that there are men that are going to die on this day. That it could be that, in fact, he could be one of the men who would die on that day. That, in fact, Absalom, his beloved son, could be lost on this day that everything that David knew in life and held dear to him could be lost to him on this day. You start, uh, I was driving down through Arkansas to rent a U-Haul truck. And uh, it had a radio in it that 
I thought in certain places in Arkansas, the radio doesn't work. It, it, it worked, but there's just not much for stations. So on, on the FM, there's certain, you know, like you get between Little Rock and Texarkana. I don't know where I was. Uh, but on the FM channel, all I could get is country music. And I went from one country music song to another, and finally, after about 10 minutes, I said, I'm going to have to turn this off because I'm so depressed. She walked out the door. I'm here on the floor, crying tears in my beer. And I was like, you know, the sun's going down, and I'm, I've got 300 miles to drive yet. And I'm all by myself, and I'm asking, Alan, is is this really where you expected to, do, to be in ministry at age 63? Building a bunch of furniture, put in a U-Haul truck, and decide that, yeah, you can drive 900 miles in one day. What are you, crazy? Now, th- that crisis in no way compares to the crisis that David is facing. David is is contemplating the loss of everything. And here is why he is a man after God's heart, because he has he has the presence of mind to realize that if he can just get himself into the presence of God, that all all of his hunger and his thirst, his his weakness, his lack of strength, every shortcoming that he has, that it it will somehow be okay. But you get this effect as you read through Psalms 42 and 43 together as though this is not getting better. This is getting worse. The, the stanzas seem to to tighten the drama of the situation. But David is regaling us to don't don't just stop at the end of verse 1. Don't just stop at the end of verse 2. Don't just stop at the end of verse 3. But but pick pick up the course. The course is, is directed to your soul. Why are you cast? Put your hope and trust in God. So again, look, Golden Gate points out that as the stanzas develop, the screw gets tighter, the agony deeper. At first it was, I can't get to God, in 42, verses 1 through 2. Then God has forgotten me. Look in verse 9, I say to God, 42, 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And now in 43, 2, God has abandoned me. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Those are all in the verses of that country song that David is singing. But then comes the chorus. What David is telling us is that no matter what we're facing, there is really no good excuse or justification for us being cast down. 
It's amazing. I mean, either this is true or it's not. Either this is God's word to us or it's just a nice story. So we judge people's spirituality in a multitude of ways, most of them in the wrong ways. We judge by appearance, right? Uh, Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We see a person smile or we hear a person speak. Uh, Yesterday, um, uh, Pastor Hardwick and his wife celebrated 10 years, a 10-year anniversary. He was married to Montel, his first wife, for 56 years. And that at age 74 or 75, God brought another woman into his life whom his, who his first wife, Montel, told him while she was on her deathbed, she said, now Barney, uh, just in case you're thinking about getting remarried after I'm gone, I hope to never have this conversation, dear God. But if you're thinking about getting remarried, there's only one woman you should marry, and that's Carol. And uh, Paul Russell said yesterday that, that that put a smile on Brother Hardwick's face. I thought that was not the right thing to say there, but he said it anyways. But they got married. And so yesterday it was their 10th anniversary. I can't believe they've been married 10 years. And... So they wanted Paul to do a little uh, renewal of vows. So they were going through the, the, the vows, for better, for worse. How many know that's in the vows? For better, for worse. And, and Brother Hardwick says, after Paul said the word worse, he said, it's not going to get any worse. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting there saying like, Brother Hardwick, it can only get worse from here on out. For better, for worse. And then when she repeated it, for better or worse, she said, it's not going to get any worse. Well, what are the, they are patterning themselves after David in the face of adversity. Brother Hardwick, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's forgetful now. And so uh, after the service Friday night, I was sitting down beside them because I know this about them. And so <laughs> some people come over, and I recognize these people. I knew them, but I couldn't remember their name. And so Brother Hardwick, Carol's sitting there, Brother Hardwick's sitting there, I'm sitting there, and he's looking up at him, and he's thinking the same thing I'm thinking. I know he is. I know these people, but I can't remember their name. So he says to me, Alan, I know these people. Can you and I started laughing because I'd already said that to myself. What are these people's names? And finally he said, now I, I, I know I know you folks. I remember you folks. And I, but I just can't remember your name. And they told him, well, our name isn't Heron. And I said, oh, you folks are from Heron, Illinois. I was trying to lighten it up, and they kind of smile and laugh. They're not from here in Illinois. They're from Texas City. But then he, then Brother Hardwick said, you remember my first wife, Montel? And I'm like, this is not the conversation we want to have now, right now, Brother Hardwick. 
And they said, oh, yes, we remember Montel. She was a wonderful woman. And two minutes later, Brother Hardwick said, you folks remember my, my first wife, Montel? And I'm like, oh, this is not good. So somebody asked Brother Hardwick, are you going to be here at church Sunday? And he said, Carol, are we going to be here at church Sunday? <laughs> so part of me wanted to say when he said, it's not going to get any worse, part of me wanted to stand up and say, it already is worse. It, it, this is bad. This is not good. So, but but they're following this pattern that says even when you're facing uh, the prospect of defeat and destruction, you have to preach to yourself and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. As bad as it is, there is still reason to hope in God. I don't know, that's a lesson I need to learn. We'll close with that. I, I have another long quote from Golden Gay, but maybe we'll pick up on that next week. If you haven't already faced a life-changing problem in your life, you will. In, inevitably, it will happen. And how good in God's providential care for us that he, he enjoins us and encourages us to make preparation. When, we, when, we have, when things are good in our life, those are the times that we should give ourselves wholeheartedly to maintaining our relationship with the Lord so that when the lights go out, by force of habit, just by the rote of routine, we uh, withdraw and retreat to those, those stable influences in our life and those habits, that, that trellis that guides the growth of the plant, the handrail that keeps a person from falling as they descend a stairwell, those things guide us through the deepest, darkest valleys of our life. Amen. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.